Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So we're going to have our reading again from the NLT. So we're in the 11th chapter of Daniel, and this is a challenging chapter. i got to be honest, I was not looking forward to studying the 11th chapter. It's complex, it's all about history, and you just wonder why, why is it in here. This section now is going to help us to understand why it's included in the Revelation that was given to Daniel. So we're going to read in detail about Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This is not the first time we have come across him in the book of Daniel. He's actually mentioned in chapter 8, but there's only a pair of verses dedicated to him. Now we have here a lot more detail. And the reason why he's so important is because he was the great persecutor of the Jews. Second century. And I want you to know at least the dates of his reign, of all the dates. 175 through 163. 163 he died. But he was ruling during those years, 175 to 163. Okay, I want to go back to verse 20, although I read verse 20 last week. I didn't say anything about it, but I want to pick it up this morning and say something about this verse because it's it's the connector between Antiochus III, known in history as Antiochus the Great, and the man we're going to be looking at in detail today. Antiochus the fourth, but he has the title attached to him, Epiphanes. But he was not the only Antiochus to take that title. There were many Hellenistic rulers that were called Epiphanes, and it means glorious or the illustrious one. So if he took it himself... Sure smacks at a lot of arrogance that this man had, and I think that's true of him. Okay, verse 20. His successor, that is, Antiochus III, his successor, will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a very brief reign, he will die though not from anger or in battle. Just one little verse to the next ruler in the northern kingdom, the Syrian kingdom, the Seleucid Empire, as it's known. Seleucid being uh, from the name Seleucus, that general of Alexander the Great that was given the northern kingdom, Syria, Palestine, Babylonia, and eastern countries. So that was a separate kingdom, separate empire. In this chapter, these rulers are called the king of the north. Again, I'm trying to refresh us. Okay, verse 21. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for the royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. This is how Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany. It fits him very well. Verse 22. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Remember how he's described in chapter 8 as the little horn. He's the little horn that comes up among the four horns. That is small, small beginning, 
a little insignificant. But what he becomes, he becomes an absolute terror and nightmare to the Jewish people. Verse 24. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land. Then he will distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will last only for a short while. Verse 25. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south, against the Egyptians, against the Ptolemies. Those are the kings that ruled their whole succession of them. Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second. These were rulers over Egypt over a couple of centuries. Ptolemy being the general, or the original general of Alexander that was given Egypt. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail. For there will be plots against him, that is, against the king of Egypt. His own household will cause his downfall, the king of Egypt. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table. Attempting to deceive each other. But it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. Verse 28. The king of the north will then return home with great riches... On the way, he will set himself against the people of the Holy Covenant, doing much damage before continuing his journey. Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south, but this time the result will be different. For warships from western coastlands will scare him off, And he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. His army will take over the temple, fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes Desecration. Desecration. That phrase known commonly as the abomination of desolation. Quoted by Jesus. Jesus refers to this, but one that was coming with the destruction of Jerusalem. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. Wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many will join them. Many who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. We're going to stop the reading right there. So verse 20 through 35. I want to read a quotation here from Thomas Newton. This is that book on biblical prophecy and its fulfillment that I discovered in my library and forgotten that I even had it. I don't know where it came from. It's a very old book with leather binding that's fallen apart, but I found him helpful in many places. But he had this to say about Daniel chapter 11 in particular. He says, the prophecy is really more perfect than any history. No one, histor- his- no one historian has related so many circumstances and in such exact order to time as the prophet 
has foretold them. And then he goes on to say that the interpreters of Daniel 11, they have to pull some facts from Josephus. They have to pull some other events from uh, the book of Maccabees, first and second. And another, a Greek historian by the name of Polybius... And the interpreters are drawing from these other historians and weaving this all together and showing how it fits the events that are foretold here. So I get exactly what he's telling us, that Daniel has given us a very complete chronological order of those events in detail. Way better than any of the secular historians have given it. They've only given us bits and pieces. And in order to see the fulfillment, we've got to go to Josephus and to Polybius and to the book of Maccabees and so on. I thought that was a very good observation that he made because it it reflects on the beauty of the Word of God. The Bible is complete in many ways. Complete in the facts that it gives us. That is, the ones that God wants us to know that are important. He doesn't give us everything. Otherwise, we'd have a Bible that's many volumes, and it wouldn't be practical for the people of God. The whole account of the creation takes just a couple of chapters. Think of that, that event. God calling the universe into existence. What kind of detail could he have given us if he wanted to about that event? But we just have it a very shortened, abridged account necessary for us to know and understand that Yahweh is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Okay, so first of all, in verse 20, we have a prophecy of the man who was the son, actually, of Antiochus III or Antiochus the great, who's mentioned in the previous verses. And this man's name is Seleucius Philopater. That's, that's uh, probably mispronouncing it, but that's his name. Seleucius Philopater. And if they're not called Antiochus somebody, they're Seleucius, and then they have another name attached to it so that they are distinguished in history, which one you're talking about. So this is the, the son of Antiochus the Great. Uh, you might remember, just briefly, Antiochus the Great was um, bent on taking the Egyptian territories of the Asian coast. He, he led a campaign up there. And in the process, he took some Greek islands. And Rome was not happy with that. They came, that the Romans sent an army, and they crushed Antiochus III's uh, army at the Battle of Magnesia. Uh, the king wasn't killed. Rather, he was made a vassal of Rome. This, is, this were, the, this were the, the peace terms of their agreement between the Romans and the Syrian ruler, Antiochus III. He became a vassal, which means he had to pay money to Rome. And he went away very humiliated as becoming a vassal of Rome. So his son, notice what it says about his son. This is what's interesting. Verse 20. It says that he, his successor... Philopater sends out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. What happened to him is his father, when he died, he left a, the annual tribute to Rome of 1,000 talents of silver with his son. He had to pay this every year. A talent was 75 pounds. So a talent of silver was a lot of money. One talent. He owed a thousand every year. This was a huge burden. 
that Philopater had to deal with. It kind of dominated, apparently, his reign. You know, he's thinking of ways, how am I going to pay this? So he heard that there was money in the temple treasury in Jerusalem. And he sent his treasure down there to seize it. And he went and looted the temple, got the money, took the money from the temple. Now, it doesn't tell us that exactly in those words, but notice how it's put that he will send a tax collector to get this tribute to maintain the kingdom, basically. But after a brief reign in uh, the ESV, it says after a few days, that's how the Hebrew reads, after a few days, but it's actually years, but it's speaking after he sent his treasure to go rob the temple in Jerusalem, that was the end of that man's reign. He only lasted 12 years because what happened to him? He was murdered by that same treasure. Heliodorus was his name. They even know who he was. So Heliodorus went and robbed the temple in Jerusalem and then turned around sometime later in a short time and killed Philopater. So the text says, but after a very short reign, he will die. Though Notice, though not from anger or in a battle. Not from anger, they think that has to do like in a brawl or something, in some sort of a fight. Nor in warfare. In other words, he didn't die with his boots on, which was a shame for a king. To die not in battle, but in some other way. How he died was, again, he was assassinated by his treasure. So there, that's why I wanted to go back and look at that. Just the way that is stated in the word of God. One little verse to the next ruler. Now we come to the prophecy, and I've divided it up into two parts, because actually it, lay, it, it flows like that. Verses 21 to 27 is the prophecy, prophecy of Antiochus IV, and his evil character in particular is what the focus is. What an evil man he is. Then in the next section, 28 through 35... It's his persecution of the Jews that is the focus of the prophecy. So I'm splitting those two sections up like that. So let's look at his character. So the next one to arise, to come to power, will be a despicable man. Contemptible. I mean, when the Word of God says that about somebody, this is defining the character from God's point of view. This, this is a very wicked and evil person before us now. He's not named, but history knows exactly who he is because of what he did. Notice that he, um, he does not come to power legally. He's not the rightful heir. Because Philopater had a son, Demetrius, who was the rightful heir to the throne after Philopater was assassinated. But at that time, Demetrius was a hostage to Rome. So Antiochus IV, who is the brother of Philopater, so he's also a son of Antiochus III, the Great. So he's one of the sons, but he was not the first in line to the throne. Demetrius was. So he, he manipulates things. And he slipped in when least expected, took over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. By flattery, it's by smooth words. And probably he made promises. Uh, to the Romans, he made promises to the Syrians, and, you know, he, he worked his way in to getting a hold of the kingdom. But he didn't come in with a lot of support. Verse 21, before him great armies will be swept away. Now, this is, this is an interesting detail, including... A covenant prince. Who's that referring to? Most people believe this is referring to the high priest in Jerusalem. And this is what happened with the high priest. 
The high priest, when he, when Antiochus IV came to power, the high priest in Jerusalem, land of Israel, was a man by the name of Onias. But he had a brother named Jason. Jason wanted the high priesthood. And he offered to pay Antiochus IV 360 talents if he would give him the priesthood. So Onias was demoted from the priesthood. He was bumped from it. And later, in the city of Antioch, the deputy of Antiochus IV murdered him and got Onias out of the way. So Jason now is the high priest, and he bought that office. So you can see the kind of things that are happening under this man's rule. Verse 25, with deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. It's the idea that he enters into agreements with various nations and peoples, making promises that he does not intend to fulfill. In other words, he's a liar. He's out just to promote his own interests, but willing to do anything to gain power and to keep power. He, he will be, he'll become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Again, he was the little horn. Without warning, he will enter... Now, this is an interesting thing that it says about him. Here is one of the ways that he gained followers and strengthened his power. He did something that none of his other rulers even thought of doing. Notice how it's described. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land, and he will distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich... Sounds like Robin Hood. You take from the rich and give to the poor. And I read where he even, he gave gifts to strangers, people he just meets, he give a gift to them. He even took money and scattered it in the streets. Why did he do that? To gain people's favor and their support of him. This is how he grew his following. This is what's being described here. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but will last... But this will last only for a short while. And here's the first indication to God's people who have the book of Daniel and they're reading this, what's in their future. And God gives these encouragements. Listen, this isn't going to be forever. The persecution of the wicked does not last forever. What God's people have to go through in history does not last forever. This too will pass, even if it is a few years. Verse 25, then he will stir up his courage. Now, what we have from verses 25 to 27 is a description of Antiochus IV's first assault on Egypt. He's going to go to war with them. Why? He wants Egypt. He wants to control Egypt because he wants to control Palestine. And Egypt had control at some point. Of Palestine. So he's going to war against the king of the south, and the king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army. I read where the Egyptians they had chariots, they had elephants, they had a cavalry, so they amassed a great army to fight the great army of Antiochus. But Antiochus was victorious. He routed the Egyptian army. And that's described here, the failure of the Egyptians. Uh, Notice it says that there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. Apparently there were uh, subjects within Egypt that were Traitors, and they just turned against the king and uh, sided against the Ptolemy ruler. And it, it leads in part, it, it leads to Ptolemy's defeat. 
Yes, this war, I made a note here, against uh, Antiochus, the counsel that the Egyptian ruler was given was to go to war against Antiochus in order to remain in control of Palestine. So there must have been some change of control over Palestine. Maybe it was not clear who had the rule of Palestine when the kingdom was divided by Alexander. Now that I think about it. The Syrian kingdom uh, may not have included Palestine. The army will be swept away. Many will be killed. Then in verse 27, there's a shift here from warfare to diplomacy. Um, Apparently, they came together to make enter into an alliance because, notice the language, but seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive one another. So they, were, they had some plan to double-cross each other in their lust for power and wealth, Each of the kings, the Ptolemy ruler of Egypt, as well as Antiochus IV. So they attempt further control of each other. Although Antiochus IV was victorious in Egypt, he did not achieve his his objective of real control of Egypt. He did not gain Alexandria, which was key to the control of Egypt. So although he was victorious in in waging war, he still, uh, it was an unsuccessful campaign. So he's not happy. And at verse 27, it, it begins to change. Notice, but Notice how verse 27 ends, but it will make no difference for the end will come at the appointed time. Even though they're plotting each other's overthrow and, and all of this. By the way, in the ancient Near East, that was just a principle that was understood that if you went to the table uh, under the guise of friendship and it wasn't true, in other words, there was an intent to deceive the other person. This was something that was really looked down upon in the ancient Near East. I think that's probably why we have the reflection in Psalm 41 that speaks of the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ by Judas. When it says in Psalm 41 in verse 9, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, who shared my food, has turned against me. So here are these two rulers, and they're doing exactly this to each other. This shows you the depth of the treachery that is in the hearts of both of these heathen rulers. They were pretending to be on some sort of friendly terms with each other, but they were plotting evil against one another. Notice how verse, well, let's come to verse 28 now. So we, we have the description of Antiochus's, just his other wickedness, what kind of a man he was. Now, the persecution of the Jewish people. Verse 28, then at the appointed time, excuse me, the king of the north will then return home with great riches, that is, what he took from Egypt, because he won the war there. But he was not happy with the outcome. He didn't gain his objective. So he's angry when he goes home. Even though he's the victor, he's angry. And he goes after the Jewish people on his return to Syria. So in order to get from Egypt to Syria, you go through Palestine. So on his way back to his home in Syria, he now is going to cause a lot of trouble for the Jewish people. And the language is, he will 
set himself against, on, on, on the way home, he will set himself against the people of the Holy Covenant. Notice the Jews are called the people of the Holy Covenant. This is, I was describing to Eric, the, that the Bible, it's all about the Jewish people. It's after leaving the universe and the creation of the world, the fall of man wants to get to Abraham. And the rest of the Bible is about his people. Why? Because that is through whom Jesus Christ is going to come into the world. And God's preservation of this nation, focusing from a large family down through one of the tribes, down through a family within that tribe, David, to the coming of the Lord Jesus in history. It's important to keep that in mind because the people of the Holy Covenant... Everything about the Jewish people, all the blessings, all the privileges that they had, all the information they had that became scripture, divine revelation, it's all because God, the true God, entered into a covenant with them, only them, made them his special people. So they're called the people of the covenant. That is, this agreement, the idea of a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And what was he, he was doing much damage before continuing his journey. Well, what did he do? He looted the temple and he slaughtered many, many Jewish people. So on his way home, he thought, just take care of business. So that shows that there is some demonic hatred in the heart of Antiochus IV. For what reason? Why did he hate the Jewish people? Why has any nation hated the Jews throughout history? Because they're God's people. And this comes from Satan. Satan hates the Jewish people because they delivered the Lord Jesus Christ who crushed the serpent's head on the cross. This is why. This was Satan's downfall and his defeat and the destruction, the beginning of the destruction of his kingdom was the coming of Christ. Antiochus doesn't know this. He doesn't know where his hatred comes from, but he hates the Jewish people. So he's just going to kill thousands on the way home and loot the temple again. Yet the text adds, okay, verse 29. Then at the appointed time, notice this is the second time we've had that phrase, and that is in the original, the appointed time. I marked it three times. The phrase, the appointed time, occurs here in verse 25, verse 29, no, verse 27, 29, and 35. The appointed time. In other words, this is, this is telling us that God is overseeing this whole thing. And it's all happening according to his will, according to his plan. And that there's a plan that's being carried out here that's far deeper than anything we meet on the surface by the recounting of these facts. But there's an appointed time for everything, isn't there? But I love that verse 29, then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south. So it's a known fact, Antiochus IV attacked Egypt a second time. And this is describing now his second campaign against the Egyptians, because he did not get what he wanted the first time, he's going to go again. By the way, the first campaign was in 169. The second campaign is two years later, 167 B.C. Now, this is what happened on the second campaign. It's getting very interesting here. He invades the south, but this time the result will be different. For warships from the western coastlands, it's stated very differently in a translation, uh, the ESV. It says, ships of Kittim. Kittim. And this apparently describes a certain cluster of countries right in the Mediterranean. Italy, Greece, 
its ships from that area. So remember that going back to the previous sermon and in the previous description of events that Antiochus the Great gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V. And by giving his daughter to Ptolemy, he was trying to subvert this man's kingdom from within using his daughter. But lo and behold, Cleopatra was loyal to her new husband. And she said, make an alliance with Rome. The Egyptians, make an alliance with Rome. Make them your friends, not with my dad up in Syria. And so they, the Egyptians had this alliance with the Romans. That is a background to what we're going to read now because these ships that come from Kittim are actually warships from the Romans. And they get word, the Egyptians sent word to them for help because Antiochus is there now again coming after them. So they send warships down. And they tell him, get out of here. I'm going to paraphrase, but they said essentially, depart from Egypt. There are people. They're the friends of Rome, they told him. Be content with your own empire. So Antiochus left humiliated and intimidated. And now he's really mad. He is really angry. Because now, when he goes back to Syria, he's going back home with his tail between his legs, he's going to come against the Jewish people again. And this is the background to what we read in verse 31. Well, notice, let me go back. The warships from the western coastlands will scare him off, and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant. And he will reward those who forsake the covenant. Boy, that's an interesting detail. What that tells us, and this is what is known, there were apostate Jews living there in Israel who wanted to adopt the Greek culture. They wanted to go along with Antiochus and his views with Hellenism. And so they they sided with him. And they're described here as those who forsake the covenant. In other words, they they didn't want to uh, follow the law of Moses, really, and be under all of those restrictions of uh, Sabbath keeping and so on. So they're described here as the people... uh, Notice, Antiochus rewards those those that are in favor of his policies. So, verse 31, His army will take over the temple fortress. Apparently, there was a military fortress uh, connected to the temple complex back then. So, he takes it over. He pollutes the sanctuary. The sanctuary being the temple. I'll describe what he did. He put a stop to the daily sacrifices. Remember, every there had to be a, a burnt offering every morning and evening. This was the law. Israel had to keep a sacrifice burning constantly. One in the morning and one in the evening. Every single day, the priests had to maintain a burnt offering. On the altar of burnt offering, that bronze altar about seven or eight feet square that was outside of the temple. It wasn't inside. It was outside in the courtyard, actually. That was the first thing they did. They had to do a sacrifice there before they went in and went about other worship inside. So he polluted the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifice, And he set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. The abomination of desolation, or a better better way of rendering that is the idea like this. The abomination 
that makes desolate. And what it's saying is that this man was going to do something so horrific, unbelievably wicked, and it would so desecrate and pollute the worship of God, the place of divine worship, that no one would be able to worship there anymore. It would render it unfit. And so what happened after he did this, no one used the temple. It became like a building, an abandoned building in a vacant lot. Weeds grew up in the ground around the temple, the courtyard. Nobody used it because his, what he did was so horrible. What did he do? Antiochus built another altar on top of the altar of burnt offering, the one that God had designed that was constructed in the book of Exodus by Bezalel, that master craftsman that made everything for the tabernacle. They still had it. And that altar of burnt offering had another altar put on top that was dedicated to the heathen god Zeus, which is the god of Greek mythology. He's actually the chief deity. The Romans would have called him Jupiter. It's the same deity. He's the chief god of the Greek pantheon. This was Antiochus' deity, was Zeus, or Jupiter. And he sacrificed, not just once, but continually, pigs on that altar. And he made a broth from the flesh of the swine, and he sprinkled the broth around in the temple complex, just trying to defile it and make it so unclean, so unfit, that the Jews would not want to worship there. And he succeeded by this. So these are all the measures that he took against the Jewish people. Besides that, he unleashed his army of 22,000 men, which again killed, killed multitudes of Jewish people. So there was death, there was blood, defilement of the temple. Now, the verses that follow describes the response now of the Jewish people and basically have two responses to the desecration of Antiochus. You have the people who were who had forsaken the covenant, uh, the apostate Jews, and they're described here, verse 32, he will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant. So there's a segment of the Jewish population that were kind of okay with letting this happen because they wanted to end, end it. Themselves, They wanted to become Greeks and worship like the Greeks. And hard to imagine that a Jewish person could follow that, but they did. These are the apostate ones who forsook the covenant. And Antiochus wins them over. Probably he uh, shared wealth and honor with them. Some made some promises to them so that they totally adopted his policies and, and, and supported what he did. But then the end of the verse says, but the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. So these are the two groups. So you have the, the faithful within Israel who remained loyal to Yahweh, who wanted to maintain the worship of God according to the law of Moses. Now, I might add that one of the things added to all of this that Antiochus did was he passed an edict also in 167, the time of the second campaign against Egypt. He passed what's known the edict of 167. And that edict basically was outlawing the Jewish religion. He, he made it illegal to own a copy of the books of the Bible. Any book of the Bible is illegal to own it. Uh, if you observe the Sabbath, any of the holidays, circumcising babies, he outlawed all of that on the threat of death. 
the edict of 167. So you've got to throw that into the mix. Now, what was his point? He wanted the Jewish people to scrap their religion and become Greeks. He was trying to unify the Grecian kingdom. He wanted everybody to conform to the Grecian custom, the Grecian religion. And here's Palestine with the Jewish people who have their own book, their own God, a completely different way of worship and a belief system. They're the nonconformists. And he wants them to conform. So it describes the persecution of those who would not conform, who resisted him. Now we know the story of those who resisted, don't we? When this edict was passed in 167, there were some Jewish people that rose up against that and said, we are not going to follow this, we are going to resist this, and we are going to fight. And these are the freedom fighters. This is the whole story of Judas Maccabees. When I was in Israel, you know, five years ago, they were celebrating. I got to be there when they celebrated the victory of the Six-Day War, which was something. Because it was in the temple uh, complex, not up on the hill, but down by the Wailing Wall. A large area that's open there. And we were there as a group, and they were celebrating. And I noticed that they were not only waving Israeli flags, but they had hammers that were inflated like balloons, a hammer. And they were throwing the hammers up in the air. I had no clue what that is. Why a hammer? Well, Judas Maccabees, this is what Maccabees means, Judas the hammer. And it was his leadership. He was one of the five sons of this priest by the name of Mattathias. And they rose up against Antiochus, against this edict, to resist and to oppose. And they, they fought for, and they eventually recovered the temple and cleansed it and rededicated it. And the celebration of Hanukkah today is the celebration of what Judas Maccabees accomplished by freeing Jerusalem the land of Palestine from Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, and recovering the worship of God. So it was a great thing that they did. But it's described here for us that these are the men who knew their God and were strong and will resist. It goes on to say, wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword and they'll be jailed and robbed. Again, the persecution that was unleashed against them. Little help will arrive. Many who join them will not be sincere. That is a, a detail that I read about, that there were, there were people who joined Judas and the, the freedom fighters. They joined them out of fear. Apparently, Judas and his brothers and those that g- gang of men could be pretty ruthless. And some people just joined him. They weren't sincere about it. They were joining out of fear, not for the right reasons. So that that may be a reference to them. Verse 35, And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. The wise are mentioned four times in Daniel 11 and 12, four together. Uh, That is an interesting way of talking about God's people. That they are the wise. The wise, we know, are those who fear the Lord. And it seems to me that fits perfect here because they're the ones who are in this revolt, not fearing the outcome. They're willing to be persecuted, willing to die in order to defend the truth and restore the worship of God. Note the blessed effect of the persecution on them. They will be refined, cleansed, and made pure. This is, this, is what's, this is a description of what suffering and affliction does for God's people. 
not just for them, but we can say this categorically, knowing what the New Testament says about suffering as a Christian. This is the end result. God is purifying us. What do you, how do you get rid of the pollutants that are in gold? I worked with gold in uh, making teeth for many, many years, and we'd heat the, the gold up in a, in a crucible. And one of the things we often have to do before making a gold casting is take a little, stir, a little stick and stir the gold uh, when it was in a molten state to get the impurities that were on the surface, right on the, right on the top. You could see them. And you put the stick through it, and it would attract them, pull them out, and then the gold is ready to go. It's in a better, pure state. The Bible uses that analogy in 1 Peter to talk about what suffering does for God's people. It purifies them. First of all, it tests whether we have the real thing or not. (laughs) Somebody said that uh, suffering uh, exposes a hypocrite and exhibits a saint. Boy, is that true. Put the pressure on, bring affliction, persecution, suffering. Those who go through it, the faith is maintained. They come out on the other side, a better person. Faith in Jesus is still intact. They haven't cast their faith overboard and said, I don't believe in God anymore because of what happened to them. No, their faith has now been demonstrated. And it's better, it's stronger, it's been purified. Is what suffering does. For the Christian. And did this for these people that stood against Antiochus and were willing to suffer. Purified them, promotes growth, and approves faith. I like what the Lord Jesus said. He said it so beautifully in John 15 when he's using the analogy of the vine and the branches. And my, he says, my father is, he's the gardener. He's the one who takes care of the vine. You're the branches. I'm the vine, Jesus says. We're connected to him. His life flows through us. But what does the Father do to maintain this garden of vines? Jesus said he prunes them. He prunes the branches that bear fruit. Why? That they might bear more fruit. John 15, 2. This is one of the purposes of suffering as a Christian. This is how God does it. This is how he produces more fruit in the life of his people. He prunes them. So coming to the end then, just note again, after the blessing of the the suffering that God's people went through, it says that this will be until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. Now, there's a couple of ways you can think of this. You can think of it as the time of the end being the end of Antiochus' persecution. Eventually, he died. He died within a few years of what we're reading right here. He died in 163. So, it's not going to go on forever, but there's an end coming. The end is certain. It's according to God's appointed time. God has it marked out. There's boundaries around this time of persecution. Um, But I also could apply it like this until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. I mean, even to the end of the, the age, the Christian church is going to face suffering. There's never a time in the history of God's people when there's not a price to pay for following Jesus Christ. Paul told his, the disciples that were converted under his ministry on his first missionary journey in Derby and Lystra and Iconium and all those places he went to on his first missionary journey. He, he and Barnabas went back and paid him a second visit, it says. Did some follow-up work among those who had professed faith. And he strengthened them in their faith, the text says. This is in Acts 14. How did he strengthen them and encourage them? Dr. Luke's very specific. He says, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, persevere, continue. Don't even think about walking away from Jesus Christ once you put your hand to, to use the agricultural 
metaphor that Jesus said, once you put your hand to the plow, you don't turn back, you don't look behind you, and you don't wish, well, I wish I could walk away from this. Now, once we take up our profession of faith as Christians, we are to continue to the end. So Paul told them, reminded them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter into the kingdom of God. There it is. This is true in every age. This is true for every Christian. There's going to be difficulty on the way to heaven, into the kingdom. I want us to think of the application along this line. So, Antiochus tried to impose another culture, another ideology, another religion, another set of core values, basically, another worldview, if you want to put it like that, on the Jewish people. This is what he was trying to do. Does this sound familiar? Does the world continue to do this? Have Christians faced this kind of pressure before? Yes. I mean, this is what Israel was up against in the second century B.C., This is what Daniel and his three friends were faced with in Babylon and then in the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, it never goes away. (laughs) We live in in a culture that is anything but Christian right now. There's opposition to our faith, opposition to what we believe in. And there's, there's kind of a pressure there to conform to this or you're going to be something is not going to be in your favor. You're going to face the consequences of this. But I just remember, uh, remember what Paul says in Romans 12 too. And these are my reminders to us together, you and me both. And I'm using the NLT for the translation, Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. There it is there. Don't let the world try to get you to adopt their worldview because it's so different from the Christian worldview. Entirely different. And 1 Peter says it like this, and it's in the context of our redemption. And this is why I'm closing with it. The NLT again on 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. You must live... In reverent fear of him, that is your heavenly father. I'm not talking about God in, a, in that sort of way. It's your heavenly father, but live in reverent fear of him. We're to fear our heavenly father. Not in the sense that we tremble before him in that sense, but to fear him in a, in a righteous, godly way where the, for us, the main concern is that He is pleased with what we do. I want to smile. Just like many boys grow up wanting their dad's approval. If I could only have had my dad tell me something, and I'm not speaking of myself, but for some young men who feel like this, my dad never approved what I did. He never affirmed me. He never told me he loved me. I mean, there's all kinds of terrible things that many have grown up with with bad dads. But the number one thing is that we want our dad's approval. We want him to think highly of us and respect us. Peter says to live in reverent fear of your heavenly father during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from... Now, notice how he describes our previous life as unbelievers to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. Boy, is that a good description of what we all had when God's grace came to us. And it was not paid with mere gold and silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. We can attribute the change in our life, our being 
delivered from a worldly worldview, one that is really hopeless in its outcome, to now the glorious hope that we have because of Christ. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.